Hey, Pioneers, and welcome to episode number 308. Today, we're talking about maximizing your homestead for profit and production. So we're going to be talking about ways to manage your property to increase the amount of livestock and or garden. It may not be livestock, but maybe it's produce that you're growing. And we're going to be talking about it in a way that maybe it's just increasing what you are providing for your own family. But if you are looking to make money from your homestead and sell some of the things that you are growing and or making, you guys, this episode is gold. And it's not it is on my podcast episode, but the reason I'm telling you that it is gold, because we learned, I learned so much from this episode that as soon as I got done with this interview, I immediately sent the link, the unedited link to my husband because it hadn't even been released yet. And I said, you've got to listen to this episode. He did. And I'm not kidding you. He listened to the episode. And within two days, we began implementing a lot of what Joel, yes, that is that is who we are interviewing today. So if you are, you may, you probably have heard of him. You may not be as familiar with his work, but most folks in the homesteading realm have heard of Joel Salatin from Polyface Farms. He's kind of like the, um, the grandfather, so to speak, of the modern homesteading movement, especially within regenerative agriculture practices permaculture practices with livestock, but also with really spreading the word within larger, without just in the homestead community is what I'm trying to say. So Joel has been kind of an evangelist as well as a teacher for this way of living for both like you and I who are homesteading and doing this or wanting to do this on our properties, but also in outside of the homesteading realm which has been really amazing. So I have known of Joel for years. In fact, when we first started raising and butchering our own chickens, we watched YouTube videos of Joel showing how to butcher a chicken. And and we would play it the night before, the morning of. And this is going to sound funny, but back when we first started, like we, our cell phones, we didn't take them out with us like a lot of people will do now because now with the cell phone that I have back in the, in the day when we first started raising and butchering chickens, I didn't have a cell phone I could take actually out in the field, or we probably would have had the video playing on our first time that we butchered right there. So we could go step by step. So I have known of Joel um, and also our chicken tractor is another thing that Joel really, I should say, pioneered and made really popular and people aware of. And so we modeled our movable chicken tractor with both our meat birds and our laying hens after Joel's teachings and and all of that. But I had not actually read any of his books. Uh, I had never had the privilege of hearing him speak before besides a podcast episode. I listened to a podcast episode that he had done. When my husband and I went to the Homesteaders of America's event, which is in, was in Tennessee. And so if you've listened to any of my past episodes, you're you're familiar with that. But we got to hear Joel not only teach and he was also showing a chicken butchering presentation demo. It was a hands-on event. And we were so inspired by so much of what Joel was sharing that on the flight home, we bought on Audible three of his books so that we could listen to them, one on the flight home, because from Tennessee to Washington State was a layover. Let me tell you, we had a lot of hours that was sitting either in the airport or or in the airplane. And then also we could listen to the books like when my husband was at work at his day job and I was doing stuff that we could listen to them and then come back together in the evening and talk about what we heard and how we wanted to apply that to what we were doing on our homestead. So when I say Joel is a wealth of knowledge, like literally you probably are going to want to be taking notes. I was taking notes as this interview was going down. I shared the notes with my husband. I shared even some of the other notes about the profit and production as far as a homestead business part with some friends of mine who were members of a small group mastermind. I was, I got on Voxer and I'm like, you guys, I just got done doing this interview. Listen to this. And was sharing a lot of the points that you're going to hear here in just a moment. So 
This is a phenomenal episode. I hope that you really enjoy it as well as Joel's words of wisdom. Now, for links to any of the stuff that we are going to be talking about, you can head over to my website, melissakeynorris.com forward slash 308, just the number 308, because this is episode 308, to get resources to a lot of those links. Now, we do talk both about the produce side, but we also talk quite a bit about livestock as well. And speaking of livestock and having wonderful meat that is pasture raised, today's episode is sponsored by ButcherBox. Now, ButcherBox, even though we do raise a lot of our own meat, I signed up with ButcherBox because one, they contacted me and said, we'd like to send you some of our meat to get your opinion on how it basically like goes up against your own meat to see what you think of the quality and the difference. And if you like it, then to share it with your audience. So I did. And so they sent me a box with a bunch of stuff and we have been going through it. We've done their grass fed hamburger. We actually did the New York uh, steaks this past weekend and we're very happy with them. And I always say that if you can raise it yourself, that's always the best. But we have layers in life, right? So there's like the, the top, which is always the best, and then we come down. And so if you can't raise it yourself or buy from a local farmer, then I think ButcherBox is an excellent option. And I have to say that right now, at the time that you are listening to this, you could go to butcherbox.com forward slash pioneering today for a very special deal. So this is a limited time offer to new members but right now you can get free bacon for life. So what this means is with every order that you place, if you sign up using butcherbox.com forward slash pioneering today, then you are going to get a free package of bacon, which is from Heritage Bread Pork, a package of uncured unbelievably delicious bacon added to every single box for the life of your membership. Now, why is that a good deal? We raise our own pigs. So you've heard many of my episodes where I've talked about the different breeds that we've done. We have bacon, but we only have so much bacon per pig, right? So you have the option. We have the option to, once we've went through the bacon that we get from our hog, to either not have bacon again until the next time that we butcher or to search out bacon and just purchase some bacon from another source. And... I'm kind of of the belief that life is too short to go without bacon. So when we exhaust our own bacon, then I will be getting my bacon from ButcherBox. But you can get a package of bacon for free by going there right now using the link, which is butcherbox.com forward slash pioneering today. Now, let's dive into this very, very incredible episode with Joel. Well, Joel, thank you so much for coming on the Pioneering Today podcast. I am beyond thrilled to get to chat with you and for our listeners to get to listen into your wisdom as well. And I know there is a plethora of things that you could talk about, but one of the things that we experienced at the Tennessee Homesteaders of America event where we got to hear you speak, my husband and I both, is we, are, we were feeling we were at a place where we thought we really needed to have more acreage and we were not satisfied with the land that we did have for what we wanted to do with it. We currently raise grass-fed beef cattle and we do laying hens and we do meat chickens and pigs on and off. We don't at the moment have any meat chickens or pigs on the farm. And we have about six acres that's actual pasture. And then we have another six acres that is very heavily wooded and very brushy. And it's a little bit of a, a swamp land. And we're running six head of cattle right now, which is about an, obviously an acre of pasture land per animal, but we're really, it's overgrazed. Uh, it's not producing enough for that amount of cattle. So it's either we downgrade our herd, which we don't really want to, we run less cattle, or we thought we need to find more pasture land is where we were at. And then we listened to you, one talk about regenerative practices, which I uh, would love to pick your brain on um, at the end. But really what struck us was when you said, don't be land hungry, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, but learn to work with the land that you have. And my husband and I's eyes have been opened to so much of what we could be doing with our land that we're not currently 
by just switching switching our focus and and looking at it as a way like let's make this work to the best of its of it and our ability so i would love for you to share more on that with people because i think a lot of people are are at that point where they think that they need more land to make it work and we just loved all of your wisdom so take it away <laughs> okay well that's a, it's a great um it, it's a great you know beginning here i think uh and and it's good that people are feeling that uh feeling some you know some tension in their in their homesteads uh in their small acreages that that they're they're looking for more so around here uh the phrase that we use is fill it up uh you're not ready to move on to more until you've filled up what you have now um that's not always the case i don't want to you know be a <laughs> you know a, an obnoxious cultist cultish about this i mean if you really like cattle and you're really good at cattle and you want to expand the cattle uh, and you've only got six acres, you're going to have to find some more acreage in order to expand your cattle. But the, the main thing I was, I was trying to uh, get at there was before, before you do that, the, um, you know, before you go to more acreage, think about what you can do to fill up what you have. I mean, uh, when you start brainstorming what you can do, to stack in permaculture style stack stacking additional um, enterprises on an existing land base on your six acres, you know you could obviously you know uh, uh, it, it wouldn't detract. In fact, it would simply add more grass to the cattle if you, for example, covered the six acres with broiler chickens. For example, uh, well, you know you could raise three thousand broiler chickens on six acres. Three thousand broiler chickens you know, is worth 15 to $20 a piece. Um, you know, you're suddenly up there in the, uh, in the, um, you know, $45,000 range of, of gross income, not net, but, but gross. Um, and then you, uh, and then you have, you could raise turkeys on that same acreage. You could raise a set of laying hens, you know, maybe uh, 500 to a thousand laying hens on that acreage that's that part and then of course you could add uh, honeybees honeybees don't they, they don't compete with anything they simply uh complement uh complement what you're already doing and so you can do that you can you can uh you know raise rabbits i mean so i'm, I'm obviously a you know a heavy livestock guy but uh, you know you could also take a, a half acre off and do very very intensive um, gardening. I mean, the stuff that uh, Ben Hartman has done with Lean Farm, or um, uh, you know, Jean Martin with um, his program there in Quebec, uh, where they they earn you know a full time salary off of like you know an acre and a half of uh, high value produce. Uh, Singing Frogs Farm in Petaluma, California. I mean, uh, intensive production where you where you don't plant seeds. Rather, you um, you start germination trays in, say, a solarium or a, a hoop house situation, so that you never you never put seeds into the garden. You're putting sets plants into the garden. I mean, I mean, with these little uh, cardboard uh, you know cardboard seed things that, that that you I don't forget now what the name of them is, but anyway, um, I mean, people are people are actually uh, you know transplant you can transplant beets. You can transplant you know, virtually anything that you would normally think that you, you wouldn't transplant with this new, um, really sophisticated, intensive um, technology infrastructure. And so, so um, uh, you know, my encouragement would be to think about how you can stack additional enterprises on there. Then the other thing, of course, is to add, to add uh, processing infrastructure. So rather than doing, um, you know, raw sales, you know, turn turn everything that you produce into a higher value added product, like um, you know, uh, you know, meat pot pies, for example, or um, you know, w w develop an inspected kitchen. I mean, that wouldn't take, but that's the footprint of a garage. But an inspected kitchen to take your cucumbers to pickles and your you know your um, your chicken to chicken pot pie, for example, and your carrots to uh you know to to meat pie status uh, all those things suddenly you know you're you're looking at a, a situation where you can generate you know 20 30 40 uh, thousand dollars per acre and uh, and suddenly land is not your limitation 
your limitation is your own imagination. Our, our son Daniel says, you know, our problem is not resources. Our, our, our problem is constipation of imagination. We just, you know, we just can't imagine all the things that we could do. And then when you have something like that, that's so cool for people to see, then you could have farm tours and you charge people to sit on a hay wagon, and take a farm tour. And then you offer them a meal, you know, for a hundred bucks a pop and you bring in a bluegrass band and, and have an evening of entertainment. And you've suddenly, you know, generated, you know, $5,000 from a, from a, a, an evening on the farm with a band and entertainment and, and, and homemade food. I mean, <laughs> those are all things that can be done either by you or by collaborative partners to generate additional income on your small acre. Oh my goodness, Joel, that all in itself, unpacking each of those, we could talk for hours, but I love all of the examples and different things that you can give. Now, so we were looking at, um, I love your suggestions there, at increasing our broiled chicken. So we do the grass-fed beef, like I said, small herd, um, and the pigs, and those we sell to family and, and friends. Obviously, it's not, not a huge volume there. Um, but we were thinking that, goodness, we could do a lot more meat birds um, with the size of land that we have. Like you said, it's a smaller footprint, and that would also help our pastures. The pastures have been just grazed by cattle, except when we took them over and have run small amounts of chicken over them for well over 70 years and have had nothing done to them. So on one hand, it's good because there's not been, you know, commercial fertilizer or weed killer or anything like that, but it's very compact. It's very weedy. It's just not been cultivated. It's just had the mono crop of the livestock essentially on just cattle. Um, so we were thinking, okay, if we increase with the smaller livestock, which would be the chickens, that would give us something you know, else to do. It would also really help restore the pasture so that we could possibly run more cattle on what we do have um, if needed and just make it better. But I was looking at, and I know this is getting really technical and each state I, I know has different laws, et cetera. But so I started to look into that and we would need to get licensing if we wanted to sell the meat chickens to people. So do you have anything like as you're actually digging into like the licensing and if you're looking to hire people when you're doing that large of a volume and it's not just, you know, you're, you know, you and your spouse in our case, do you have any tips for finding people to help or about that process when you're looking to enlarge going from just a, a one or a two person farm if it's a, a couple? Yeah, well, uh, let, let's, let's, Let's take this apart a little, a little piece, piece by piece. Okay. Inter interrupt me when I'm when I'm off the reservation here. Um, so you know, we we uh, Teresa and I did um, you know several thousand broilers. You know, not not twenty, not twenty thousand, but we certainly did you know five to I don't know eight thousand pretty much ourselves uh, there early on, and uh, just two of us and. Um, and you know we had a we had a regimen, um, but the two of us could process 25, 25 birds an hour. So in in uh, you know in four hours, I'm sorry, the two of us could process fifty birds an hour. That's twenty five birds per person hour. So in two hours we could do a hundred birds. And so in a morning, you know we would we would start. I'm just I'm just telling you what we did. Mm -hmm. um, I I would get up, set the alarm, get up, go out, start the scalder go back to bed while the water got hot. And then we'd go out at five and we'd, we'd process till seven. I, I caught those hundred birds the evening before and we'd do a hundred. Then she'd come in get the kids up and breakfast and all that. I'd go do chores, bring in another hundred. We'd start back in at nine, work till 11 and uh, clean up by noon. Customers began arriving, you know, by one and by four o'clock, all the 200 birds are gone, uh, sold. And, um, 200 times uh, times 15 bucks a piece is $3,000. And uh, then I'd go do chores, she'd get supper. And, you know, that was a day and we would, and we would do this. So we could do 200. And you know, that was, a, it was a, that was a, it was a sprint. That was a long day, but we didn't do it. But, you know, about, uh, about three days every three weeks. So, um, so we'd have two weeks off and then we'd process three of those days in a week and do, you know, in the neighborhood of, 600 birds, you know, in that, in that week. And, um, and we would do that, you know, eight times in a season. So, you know, you're looking at 4,800, 4,000, 4,000 to 5,000 uh, broilers, um, just the two of us. So the, the trick, what I'm getting at there is the trick is, is a having 
good, efficient equipment, uh, you know, automatic scalder, automatic picker, a nice table to work on, you know, good water source. I mean, that that's just having some good infrastructure there. And secondly, skill. You, the, the, the weak link in this is skill. The, the, the waterloo for everybody is skill and how to be able to process these birds fast. And, um, and so, you know, we, we, we were very skilled. And so we were able to do it real fast. So, um, so I, I, I think, well, it's always more fun with a couple other people. Um, and, and, and I encourage that. Uh, we've always <laughs> encouraged folks to come and, you know, to come and process with us and learn. All right. I'm just, I'm just giving you some numbers so you can see how, see what is doable, what we did. And uh, as my mentor, Alan Nation, used to say, uh, if somebody has done it, it can be done. So, um, so you know, that, that's, the way we would, that's the way we would go, uh, go forward with it. Now, um, that's the, the kind of the, the, the manpower situation that you asked about. So now you get into the licensing and, and, and all of that. And so um, my encouragement there, what state are you in? I'm in Washington State. Washington State. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, Washington State. Yeah. Um, different states have different, you know, uh, strategies, but there is a federal exemption. It's called Public Law 90-492, PL 90-492. It's the producer grower exemption. It's a federal exemption. It allows you to do 20,000 a, it's it's the producer grower so a producer grower if you're the producer the grower um you can do up to twenty thousand chickens a year without inspection now that doesn't mean that a bureaucrat won't come and visit it means that no bureaucrat has to be on site while you're processing and the only thing the law says is that they have to be sanitary and unadulterated now that's of course very very subjective <laughs> now a state a state can be more restrictive. And if you know my book, Everything I Want to Do is Illegal, you'll read in there our battles with the bureaucracy over keeping our open air, open air shed um, you know, legal throughout this process. We're still doing it, still doing it open air in the backyard. Um, and, you know, and we do, well, officially we do 20,000 a year. <laughs> <laughs> Got ya. <laughs> so um, so about, about 30 states, have just written in the 20,000 and about, uh, uh, I'm sorry, about 30 states have written in 20,000, about 20 states are more restrictive, some down to the 1,000. Um, and, and so here's my, here's my counsel. My counsel is don't do anything at first. Uh, nobody's going to give you a fine. Nobody's going to send you to jail. There's not going to be a big deal. Um, if, if, if you get on the wrong side of a bureaucrat on this, what they'll do is tell you you have to quit. That's the worst that'll happen. And so I encourage people to go ahead and just start. Don't ask, don't tell. Now, don't do a bunch of advertising. Don't advertise it, you know, in the newspaper or anything like that. Just do it as you've done, you know, family, friends, one-on-one, -on -one, QT, you know, on the quiet. Just let it let it be gentle. We call this guerrilla, you know, guerrilla marketing. And, um, and you just let it, let it kind of organically go at its pace as a as a as an undercurrent um uh, a, a quiet grassroots revolution you know in the community and um and you know we we did this for goodness for uh 15 years before we got sideways of the bureaucracy then we, of course we had to deal with that but um most people, if you just remain quiet and just don't advertise and just let it go word of mouth and gently, um, you know, you'll be able to go three or four years. And at least that's long enough to find out if you like it. Is it profitable? Is it something you can do? Is it, is it, is it, is it beneficial? Is it a good fit for you? And, um, and so by the time that you get crossways of the bureaucracy, you'll figure that out. And if it's, if it's not a good fit for you, then, you know, then, well, makes it easy to quit. <laughs> if the bureaucracy throws too big a hurdle in front of you, but if it is a good fit, then there's a whole list of things that you can do 
uh, to either circumvent or comply, depending on which is easier. Uh, sometimes circumvention is much easier than compliance. For example, you can sell that you can sell the chick live to a customer and process it for free. So um, yeah, that way, you're not processing chickens. You are offering that uh, that that's a that's a free service. You're not getting paid for. It's it's the transaction of money that gets you in trouble with the bureaucracy. You can process a hundred thousand chickens a day in your backyard and give them to neighbors, and it's completely legal. But the second you charge a penny, now it's quote unquote in commerce. And so the government basically does not regulate things that are in charity, but they regulate things that are in commerce. And there are now numerous uh, ways to circumvent that. In fact, uh, in, in August, we'll be hosting uh, the Rogue, uh, uh, Rogue Food Conference, R-O-G-U-E, Rogue Food Conference. Our moniker is circumvention, not compliance and where we bring together the best circumvention ideas and practitioners in the country to share their wisdom and their loopholes for people to be able to, um, you know, to be able to, to transact business uh, in their communities uh, in, in, in ways that kind of circumvent that, you know, that the regulatory, the draconian, draconian regulatory oversight. There's a lot of options there. Um, you know, once you, once you get to that point, but, my advice is always just go ahead and start. You know, you can get up to 500, 600, maybe even 1,000 birds. And, and the worst that will happen is somebody will say, you know, a bureaucrat will say, you got to stop this. And, and then that's when you make a decision as to, you know, how you want to proceed uh, going forward. Gotcha. So if we did where you came in, bought a farm tour, and learned how to process a chicken and then you just got to take the chicken for free we're not actually selling the butchered meat is it would that be a kind of what you're saying Ab absolutely absolutely in fact you may not know that uh, washington state i think it was washington state uh the seattle area is where the i don't know what the what the uh, trade name was it was it was like backyard butchery or something but there's there's now a franchise oh. for urban uh, for uh, it, it's an urban meat processing franchise where people come together. It's it's essentially a um, it, it's it's a pop pop up backyard butchery deal where they do they do pork. I have I don't think they do chickens or beef, but they do pork. And um, so you know, ten fifteen people will get together and pay you know two hundred dollars for a for a day long class in butchery. And so they kill the pig. They come together at somebody's backyard, kill the pig, and uh, cool it down. And then in the afternoon, they you know they cut it up and make sausage and all that stuff. And everybody takes their portion home, and it's a way for a farmer to be able to sell a pig direct market without any uh, regulations whatsoever, even circumvent the entire slaughterhouse you know deal. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's it's actually a uh, I wish I could remember the name of it right now, but it. it uh, at least several years ago, it was a going concern and actual franchise uh, franchise deal that was spreading from the Seattle area into you know uh, other cities around the country. Oh, I'll have to look that up. I have it. We're about two hours uh, north east of Seattle. We're much closer to the Canadian border, but that's still relatively close. So I'm sure I can do some some searching around and and see. Uh, that'd be very interesting to look at. Um, I'm my brain is like going 100 miles per hour now with all of the different the different things that you've said here and ways that we could do that now i do actually have one question so you were every three weeks so you were obviously just getting you know chicks in at varying stages in order to butcher every three weeks but when you guys first started uh you said you would do about 200 birds would be in that day and you would do it over about about a three-day period so every three weeks was it new customers was it just people that would buy you know enough birds to just get them through, or was it just a combination? Or I'm just really curious at what the the clientele looked like when it was at that that smaller point of operation and it was direct to consumer. Sure, sure. Well, uh, it was it was all over the board. I mean, we had we had people who would come a long distance uh, once a year, and you know, and get fifty, even a hundred chickens. And those there weren't very many of those, but but we still have those today. 
who who come uh, you know even up to 500 miles with a minivan they take all the seats out of it mom and dad take a weekend away you know and leave the kids with grandma and and come and basically it's their you know it's their pilgrimage to mecca and they fill up the freezer for the year um but most people most people would come and get 10 or 15 that was the was the normal thing they'd eat a couple of them fresh put the rest of them in a freezer some people took them home and and, and cut them up and parted them out and they had you know uh, breasts and thighs and legs and, you know, different things, make stock out of the backs and necks. And, um, you know, uh, it, it, it was, it was the whole gamut. And then, so, I mean, back, back in, in our early days, we didn't actually sell frozen, but we always sold uh, fresh birds. Um, you know, I've, I've been at this a long, long time and watched the erosion, if you will, of cult of domestic culinary, um, uh, skill and participation dwindle mm-hmm. uh, o- o- over the years. I mean, when we started, um, you couldn't even buy boneless, skinless breast in the supermarket. I mean, if you want a boneless, skinless breast, you had to go get a chicken and take a knife and cut it out, you know, and all that stuff. Uh, then gradually, you know, pieces and parts started coming up in the supermarket. Gradually, we had more and more customers asking, well, would you do pieces and parts? We didn't want to do it and didn't want to do it. And finally, you know, we just had so many people saying, well, I'd buy more chicken if you do that, that we decided to offer it. And the first year we offered it, we sold another $20,000 worth of chicken without raising another chicken. That's what value adding. That's what value adding does. So, so we basically take a $15 chicken and we part and piece it out in, in about, in about uh, three, three person minutes of labor and double the value of that chicken. So, yeah, so you can, you know, if, if you start doing all parts and pieces, <laughs> if you get 3,000 broilers at 30 bucks a piece because you're part and piecing them out, now suddenly you're up in there, you know, in the, in, in the $90,000 range. Oh, my gosh, that is fascinating. I would have never guessed that you could increase the profit uh, just by doing some of that manual labor and selling it by the piece rather than the whole. That is just, that is fascinating. Um, from both a business aspect, but also to, you're right, and mainstream, and not, and I'm not, you know, excluding myself from from that because there are times when it is nice to pick something easy and someone else has done part of the work for you. But that is just amazing. Those numbers, wow! I would have never guessed that. Yeah. Now, Melissa, to be sure, to be sure, we don't charge our our uh, differential in price between, for example boneless, skinless breast or chicken tenders versus uh, wings or uh, which are now very in short supply of it, uh, but, but uh, versus wings or, thigh, or legs or thighs. Um, our price differential is way, way different than it is in the supermarket because we're using all hand labor. And so we consider this a luxury convenience um, in, the, in the greater, you know, the greater supermarket uh, uh, you know, marketplace, um, the boneless, skinless breast is considered kind of a, a, a staple. And so, uh, so, you know, while our, our legs and thighs, um, I can pull a price list right here, our legs and thighs um, might be, you know, five bucks a pound, the boneless, skinless breast is, um, Fourteen dollars a pound. That that's a that's a much wider separation than you'll see in the supermarket. But we, but what we wanted to do on this, we were paranoid. Our biggest fear when we started this was we we get left with a bunch of um, you know the, the the bottom end of the bird, mm-hmm. and and um, and so we we put those. What we wanted to do, we wanted to make the boneless skinless breast. We wanted to make, get our value back on the entire chicken that we could actually throw the whole chicken away, the, the rest of it away if all we sold was the, bre- was the breast. That way we covered our risk and, 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 um, and you know, made it better. And you know what? That price differential for us has helped keep equilibrium in that inventory so we aren't throwing away the, you know, the bottom end of the bird. Oh, yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And honestly, like, I know too, like obviously, you know, with pasture raised the way that, and we have modeled the way that we uh, raise our meat birds, even just for our own personal consumption um, from you. But 
and I, I, I'm sure I know you experienced this too, but I experienced like with Army, like people like want to compare the price they would get at the grocery store for slaughterhouse meat versus this pasture raised heritage breed, you know, like done well. But when they taste the difference, then yeah. they're like, oh my gosh, like they get it because there is, there is no comparison, the texture, the flavor, I mean, let alone the humanity of it for that animal. Um, and so I know like if someone's listening and if you've never had true pasture raised poultry and chicken, like you don't even know what you are missing until you've tried it. And then you're like, oh yeah, it's worth every penny because it is so much more flavorful and better for you and obviously better for the environment and the animals involved, but just on a flavor, just on the eating part. Um, so different. And, and one, one other little item I, I would like to add to that, when you talk, start talking about price pointing, which is, you know, we can do a whole podcast just on, on price pointing and, and the, the messaging around artisanal prices, the, and the, um, and the art of setting price points and, you know, prejudicial price points, you know, what can people stand? What can they not? That sort of thing. But I just, we just point out to our people all the time to realize that bonus, that, that our chicken, if you buy a whole chicken, it's cheaper per pound than boneless skinless breast at Walmart. And that, and that chicken will give you several meals, you know, not just one from that boneless skinless breast. So, you know, nutrition, taste, you know, all those things aside, just from a price pointing standpoint, our, our whole chicken price is this is roughly the same as boneless skinless breast from Tyson at Walmart. So, you know, that's a, that's an important selling point that we make, uh, you know, in, in price point. Oh man. Yeah. Amen. Same. Yeah. I feel like that's not feel like it's true. It is true. Anytime I feel like you're buying the whole thing, like, or even if it's a half a beef or a quarter beef, because you're paying the same price per pound for all of the cuts. And you don't get that when you go to any other, like a store, Walmart, Costco, whatever it is you go to. So yeah, great. Thank you for pointing that out because it's very true as well. So Joel, I have to ask you, I know time is precious here, but when we are, so we're looking at wanting to do more regenerative practices on our existing pasture that we do have, um, and chickens are going to be a part of that. But one of the things for our brushy areas, so we have predominant, like we have a lot of blackberries, um, just invasive uh, blackberries, which are actually brought here. They're, a lot of people think they're native. They're, they're not. They were brought here in the 1800s, and that's why they're so invasive. But uh, we also have predominantly in our forests here, we've got uh, cottonwoods, alders, and maples, and then our evergreens are cedar, fir and hemlock for the most part and then we'll have some like vine maples and the, the underbrush salmon berries etc um, so for our forested area because it's we don't want to take away all of the forest and turn that all into pasture but we would like to get more use out of that land and so we are looking at considering either sheep and or goats and I have no experience with either of those from a livestock or as a dairy animal. Um, all, of, all of our experience lies in, in chickens, cattle, and pigs. So do you have any uh, advice as to when you're looking at bringing on either of those parts of livestock um, as to things to consider when you're choosing between them? Yeah, I, I do actually. Um, uh, first of all, I would say that I mean, you've got to remember that sheep and goats are very different. Um, they both have a much broader palatability index than a cow. In other words, they'll eat more thorny and briary and, you know, different things than a cow. Uh, the main difference between a goat and a sheep, a goat is a grazer like a cow. And a, I'm sorry, a goat is a browser um, and wants to eat 70% of its, of its intake above its shoulders, whereas a sheep is a grazer like a cow and wants to eat 70% below its shoulders mm -hmm. so if you're trying to clear out you know brambles and brush and things like that there's no better tool uh to do it than a goat just you know, just remember that a goat is uh, a lot more difficult to keep in you know, the, old, <laughs> the old saying uh, if a fence won't hold water it won't hold a goat and um and so it goes difficult to get in but here's the silver lining. You know, everything has the silver lining. The silver lining of a goat is that because they eat above their shoulders predominantly, you don't have to move them as frequently as you would a sheep or a cow to keep them from grazing over their own defecation. 
the, the reason you have to move a sheep and a cow so frequently, I mean, we move them daily, um, is, I mean, there, there are a lot of reasons for that, but one reason is because they're grazing over their own um, excrement. Whereas a goat, because they're browsing, um, they're not down there nibbling, you know, and running their lips across where they just pooped yesterday. And so uh, while the fencing requirement is more on a goat, you can, you can uh, leave a goat in a place, goodness, you know, a week uh, and move them weekly and be fine. Now, uh, the other thing to remember as you think about this is that the recovery period on brushy, woody vegetation, the, the energy recovery period, in other words, it's, it's, it's defoliated, and then it has a recovery period where, where it uses its own internal energy to, you know, to send out new shoots and buds and leaves. The recovery period is way, way longer on woody species than it is on forage species, legumes, grasses, um, uh, you know, medics, uh, forbs, all those, the, the forages. And so that's why goats tend to um, transition a brushy, weedy place from, from brushy stuff to grass over time because they gradually kill the brushy material and aren't that aggressive at grazing the grass. So the grass tends to come up under the defoliated brush, which tends to gradually die over time um, because most people don't give it enough recovery, who don't want to give it enough recovery to actually completely recover its energy cycle. So the, the general trajectory is the brushy stuff goes downhill, uh, you know, and descends in, a, it descends in vibrancy on a given landscape. And the grasses, the, 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 the grazing, the sheep and the cow preference, the grasses then tend to, tend to come on. Um, that that sounds like a very nice um, you know landscape trajectory <laughs> for someone who wants to bring on forages. The problem with here's the problem: it takes about five years for that to ha happen. And at about the five year level is about the time you start to really like it. <laughs> you know, you learn how to keep them in. You learn how to you know move them and take care of them. You know all the different things. Uh, you just start learning about goats. And so at, at the five-year level, just when you've fallen in love with your goats is right when they've eaten themselves out of their habitat. Then you turn them into grazers, and now they're eating over their manure. They're eating candy bar, you know, candy bar forage when what they want is a lot of roughage and, and cellulitic material. And suddenly then you get prolapsed uteruses, you get mastitis, you get hoof problems, all sorts of things because we've taken this browsing animal that wants to eat more rough stuff, more fibrous, uh, less protein and turned it into a lush candy bar, you know, forage grazer like a sheep or a cow. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those are just some things to keep in mind um, uh, on on these uh, systems. You know, depending on the acreage and your own energy level, uh, sometimes these things are are easy, are whatever. You know, in the big picture, just as easy to convert with a you know with a chainsaw and a mattock. Uh, obviously, you can run pigs in there, but the pigs, the pigs won't. I um, mean, they'll, they'll take brush down if you put their feeder on them. So you can you can get pigs to mash over and and kill brambles and brush if you put their if you put their feeder or waterer on the spot. We've done a lot of that where you just keep moving those that feeder and waterer around each time the pigs access a given you know a given lot. You continue to move those pigs, the, the, the pig infrastructure around and create high impact zones where that uh, uh, where that infrastructure is. And uh, you get this bramble patch one time, you get that bramble patch the next time. And before you know it, you've got nice grass and clover and plantain where there used to be, you know, blackberries and multiflora roses. And, um, and, and the pigs have done all the work. The pigs will not climb up something like goats. You know, they don't they won't climb up, push things down. But they do have a very, very broad palatability index, and um, and so just don't discount what pigs can do over time, especially if you help them a little bit with some with some with a you know with a mattock and and a, and a chainsaw from time to time, and and a, even a machete, and just kind of come in there as a partner to the pigs and and just you know um, uh, and and be their you know be be their partner.
Yeah, we, we've had great success actually with the pigs helping clear. I think part of our, our problem is, is we either need to bring on more pigs <laughs> in order to do get more of it cleared how we would like. Um, and I think that's why we were kind of looking at the goats for some of those brushy areas. Um, but maybe it is bringing in more pigs and finding, you know, more of a, a market for the pigs or just enriching our, our customer base with the pigs um, and doing that because they did an excellent job. In fact, it was so funny. My husband was just out there this past weekend. We butchered the pigs in, uh, actually it was late. We butchered them the end of January and then reseeded that area because they had gotten it down um, down to the dirt. And so we reseeded it and he's like, man, in comparison to the rest of the pasture, like I can't believe how rich, like the clover and the grass, like everything in that area, it's just prime. Like it looks so good. Um, but I think for us, it, it's figuring out how to be able to do that on a, a, we want it on a faster scale, I guess is what I'm getting at there. Um, which does lead me to my next question that I've got for you. And so that is where we have the pasture that doesn't have any brush on it, which is great, but it's where the cows have been predominantly, but it's very compact and it doesn't have a lot of clover, a lot of grass, like it's just not prime. It hasn't been, is there a time when you would say, if you really needed to get turned over and loosened up and you want to grow more clover that you would just disc that up and and do it manually like that with a tractor and reseed it and keep the cattle off of that for a time or are you always a proponent of no see if you can do that with other livestock instead and take the longer route all right so melissa i've got a i've got a question for you are yeah. you rotating are you rotating these cows are they are they on this six acre pasture all the time? Is it divided in half? Uh, what's your management style? Great, yeah, it, it, it's divided in half. And so on the top half is where I have my laying heads, which is only a flock of nine right now. So we're moving them across it. And then we're rotating the cattle about every, right now in order to get it grown up enough to, to feed the six as we move the herd, we're keeping them off for about two to three weeks and then putting them back on. And so we have it rotated into into thirds um and so every three weeks they're going from one to the other so are are because it's not growing fast enough unfortunately um to feed them all if we don't let it go that long okay uh okay all right so <laughs> so what here's here's what i'm gonna here's here's what i'm gonna suggest this is what we do yeah and uh, and so i want you to think about this okay Imagine putting those six on a spot that would feed them for only one day. Only one day. Okay. And you move and you move them every day. And what happens then is that they don't rebite the new growth. You can walk out there where they are and you can look. Get down on your hands and knees if you need to, but you can look at the new shoots. You can see the 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 grazed um, grass sheath, uh, the outer sheath, and then the and then the grass sends up a new uh, whorl whorl in the middle of that sheath as it as it sends up its new blade, um, and the the cattle will graze that off even when that new shoot is only an inch tall. Andre Voisin called this the law of the second bite. And the problem with that is that it weakens the grass plant because the grass plant can't get beyond its, its uh, slow, slow restart, you know, what I call diaper grass stage. It can't get into you know, juvenile adolescent stage where it grows very, very rapidly. Um, so, so by, by uh, confining them tighter to one or two days, the, the grass cannot regrow enough for them to eat the regrowth um, before the grass has, has produced the energy, has, has, has replaced the energy it used in sending forth that shoot. See, the, the plant actually uses up its its carbohydrate savings account stored in the root to send forth that new shoot. And if you don't let that leaf area, the solar collector, if you don't let that solar collector get big enough, long enough and strong enough to replace that savings account in the roots, 
that was expended in sending forth the shoot, you actually weaken that plant over time. And so, and so what you're doing, the reason pastures wear out is because they are being, they're not being allowed to rest long enough between the initial pruning mm -hmm. and, and the second pruning. Sometimes, <coughs> excuse me, sometimes I like to use the word pruning instead of grazing, A, partly because grazing has such a negative, you know, politically incorrect connotation these days. But secondly, because pruning actually connotes a lot better what we're striving for. We're actually not trying to use up, i.e. graze, use up the forage. We're actually trying to prune it to restart a freshened up vegetative um, uh, production cycle. And so, um, so I can't tell you sitting right here, uh, you know, I don't know what your rainfall is. I don't know what your fertility is. I can't tell you if six on six acres is too many. My mm -hmm. sense is it probably, it probably is. But, um, but, you know, here on our farm, we're running 0.9 acres per cow equivalent, okay? We're getting 400 cow days per acre. And so, so I know... I know that six can, you know, in some places, mm -hmm. six can be run on six acres, but you're going to have to really, really tighten up that grazing where they never eat that second, that, that new shoot. What happens then is that you have, instead of three, three paddocks that you rotate every two to three weeks, instead what you have is, is well, let's say we've got uh just for sake of discussion, let's say we've got six acres, and um, and if we want to go to, let's say we go, we want to go to six sixty day, sixty day rest periods. Just for sake of discussion, that means those you would have sixty paddock. That would be a tenth of an acre per day, a tenth of an acre per day um, for those for those six head. Now. If if you had um, if you had so 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 what does a tenth of an acre look like? Well, a tenth of an acre, you know, if an acre is five thousand roughly five thousand square yards, a tenth of an acre looks like five hundred square yards. Okay, mm -hmm. well, what does that look look like? Well, five hundred square yards would be like twenty yards by twenty twenty yards by twenty five yards. Okay, just to give you a, a, a sense of it, and so. As you go to that, you, you essentially create a mosaic, you know, been grazed, regrowing, yet to graze. You get this extreme uh, patchwork quilt view of your pasture as you, as you go that direction. And, um, and it's, it's, quite, it's quite profound. Uh, but that, that's the only way that I know. The only way I know that you can get maximum production without sacrificing gain. Okay. And, 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 and there will be some times when you sacrifice gain to do that because, get, because individual performance and, and acreage performance are on two opposite ends of a teeter-totter. To get maximum gain, you need, to, you need to reduce your intake, your production per acre, so they only eat cream. Problem is, if they only eat cream, then they're they're going to gradually uh, clean out all the good stuff, and they're going to they're going to eat all the good stuff, and they won't eat any of the bad stuff. You want them to eat, you know, uh, uh, weeds and 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 everything. Okay, and so so by by restricting them, uh, that's the only way I know that you can get maximum production and maximum per acre. Uh, and what that will do is move. The bottom line is that that kind of management style will move your species diversity to a totally different place. So I never recommend planting a seed. You've got all the seeds you ever need right there in the pasture. Some of them have been there for 100 years, and they're waiting for management to change so they feel comfortable germinating and, and, and will live, and they're just waiting. So, the rule, so our, our axiom here is change the management, change the vegetation. So whatever you have is a physical manifestation of the management that's been 
applied to that acreage for you know x number of years and it and it can go back you know to long before you were there too uh that that enters into that context so the faster you can get it to a primal uh uh Movement choreography, think about the wildebeest on the Serengeti, think about the bison on the American plains. The faster you can get it to that mob effect, uh, uh, tight rotation, um, the faster you'll start seeing these other species uh, begin to, you know, begin to develop and you'll get a lot more organic matter, more fertility, better, um, you know, I'm sure they have campsites, so they tend to have spots that they drop manure in, spots that they eat. And so you get this real, um, you know, translocation of nutrients, incubator for pathogens, campsites, that sort of thing. So by going to the smaller patches, you make sure that you put all your manure and urine right on the forage that they ate. And, and it, it, it tightens up your, you know, your, your fertility uh, program as well. And you're not translocating nutrients to, you know, under, a tr- you know, uh, under other places. Okay. Goodness. That was a wealth of information. And, I am so excited. In fact, before this episode even releases to the listeners in public, I'm having my husband listen to this one. There's so much good info in, good information in there. Um, and, you know, like the actual growth pattern of the grass, like you were saying that they were eating that new, like I mm-hmm. did not even know that. I have not studied the growth of grass like I have our vegetables and our fruits and our berries and that type of stuff. So I thank you so much for explaining that. Um, to me in a way that I could understand, but also in a way that's like, <laughs> this is going to be your best practice. Um, I yeah. really appreciate that. I can't help but do a shameless plug here. I have a new book coming out in August uh, called uh, ho- called Homestead Animal Happiness. And and it, it, it has a whole chapter, you know, explaining what I just explained to you. What I'm trying to do is, is, is miniaturize and downscale all the principles we use at commercial scale down downscale it to a you know to a two to ten acre uh, homestead uh, capacity and put in all the things that I have not seen in homestead livestock books. So stay tuned, that's coming. Yeah, and as soon as it comes out, I will be sharing it with my audience. We on our way home from the Tennessee event of the Homesteaders Americas Conference, we got uh, three of your books and put them on Audible and so that my husband and I could listen to them together and then come back uh, in the evenings. He works a day job and go over the stuff together that we've listened to. And we've already been so inspired to do so many things. So yes, your books are, are really great resources. And thank you so much for coming on today, Joel. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Melissa. Was that not an incredible episode or what? And we have already begun implementing. We've got the pasture divided out and we have started rotating the cattle through the exact process that Joel shared in this interview. And I have to say, my husband and I were both shocked to see it worked exactly as Joel said. Now, I should say we've only been rotating them through. We're only into day three. But when we put them in the very small paddock for the first day and had that sectioned off per his recommendations, You guys, they ate weeds and small little things of brush that were just starting to come up in that area that they would they never have touched previously. So by putting them in, just like he said, they definitely went after and ate down the weeds as well. So we are really, really excited to see how our pasture is going to evolve and improve by using these methods. And of course, the longer we do it, the the better that's going to be and the more apparent it's going to become. But right off the bat, we were very, very excited to see how that was coming. Now, we've also already begun implementing some of his strategies and marketing advice with raising chickens for meat, which we've already done for ourselves for years. But Um, in looking at offering that as actually a profit center for our homestead where we can offer that to community members. Now, if diving into business, turning your homestead, or maybe it's a skill set that you have, or maybe it's even a product that you have, but learning how to turn that into a business, specifically with marketing and using online avenues, 
in order to be able to market and to find your customers and then to sell effectively to those customers, then I have partnered with Anne of All Trades, who is a dear friend of mine, who is also a very, very savvy online marketer herself within the traditional skill set. She does carpentry, if you're not familiar with Anne, as well as a bunch of other homestead things. And we are doing a free challenge. I'm very, very excited about this because I've never actually done the, I've done business consulting is actually business consulting slash coaching um, privately with friends and acquaintances, but I've never done it in this type of a public before and getting to do it with Anne. So you're getting two of us with both of our experiences. We are doing it completely for free during this amazing three-day challenge. So during this three-day challenge, you're going to discover your product hook in order to nail your marketing and get targeted customers that buy. That is the key there, targeted customers that buy. You're gonna learn how to find the right customers to increase your sales organically with free resources that everyone has access to during this free three-day challenge. So it's starting on Tuesday, June 22nd with myself and Anne of All Trades. So you need to go and get your seat, get registered at melissaknorris.com forward slash business. melissaknorris.com forward slash business. I cannot wait to begin talking about all of these things and sharing everything that both Anne and I have learned over the past decade in order to grow our businesses so that you can create streams of income for yourself and your family using your homestead skills and or possibly your homestead. So go and snag that seat right now and I will meet you back here next week for another amazing episode. I really do hope that you found Joel just as delightful and his knowledge base as wonderful as I did. Blessings and mason jars for now. Mm-hmm.